Welcome to the Asbury First United Methodist Church Weekly Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast or other ways to connect, please visit asburyfirst.org. Our text this morning comes from the very beginning of a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christian church in ancient Corinth. And if we think about a timeline of the New Testament, we start with uh, Jesus' ministry on earth, his death, his resurrection, his post-resurrection appearances and ascension. And after all of that, and after the breaking in of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, as the Christian movement is finding its footing, as the disciples who walked with Jesus are starting to spread the good news around the world, the ministry of Paul begins. And Paul becomes a hugely prolific missionary and church planter and preacher and teacher and pastor and theologian. And as I said, the bit of text that we get this morning is a correspondence between Paul and the church in Corinth. Paul lived in Corinth for a while. He helped establish the church there, and it's thought that about a year and a half later, he moved on, but stayed in written correspondence with the congregation. And at the time of the writing of this letter, he's heard through mutual acquaintances, through whom he calls Chloe's people, that there's trouble in the Corinthian church, that there's conflict and disagreement. He names this in verses 11 and 12, saying, It has been made clear to me that there are quarrels among you, What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, who is the disciple Peter, by the way, or I belong to Christ. Paul has heard that the Corinthians are starting to pledge their allegiances to different early Christian leaders. They're starting to create tribes within the congregation and fight with each other about which way is the right way. Now, tribalism and infighting within the church different schools of thought following different theologies and following different leaders. This obviously wasn't a problem that got conquered once or for all in the first century in Corinth. It's perhaps just as pervasive today as it was back then. And because of that, because church conflict and separation and schism and denominational differences have become so ubiquitous, it might be easy to kind of shrug off what's happening in the Corinthian church or even shrug off this entire passage of scripture. It might be easy to think, yes, whenever you bring together a group of people, especially around a hot button issue like religion, there's going to be disagreement. There's going to be conflict. It's unavoidable. Or it might be easy as we look backwards in church history and study conflicts to hone in on the details of the fight, to wonder what the theological differences were exactly, and then to debate which side was right in our eyes or in the eyes of history. But I think that both what is happening here in this conflict in Corinth and in Paul's response to it runs a little deeper than we might initially think. While the surface-level details suggest that the conflict is about differences in theology or teaching between different camps of Christians, I wonder if what actually lies at the heart of the struggle in the Corinthian church has nothing to do with those different leaders that they're pledging their loyalty to. I think it might actually be about discomfort with letting go of some sort of tangible certainty that they as disciples are on the right path that they're really following Jesus, that they're doing the right thing. I think maybe what the Corinthians are looking for is a concrete way to know and reassure themselves that they're good people. 
I wonder if their attempts to align themselves with the correct leader or their attempts to convince each other that they are following the correct leader are actually more about reassuring themselves that they're faithful disciples and that they're doing okay. I wonder if projecting the right way onto someone else and then aligning themselves with that person and then convincing everyone around them that they're part of that right group gives them something steady to hold on to that they hope can alleviate their worry or insecurity around their fear of screwing up or just not being any good. That resonates with me. I worry sometimes about if I'm living the way that Christ calls me to live. I worry sometimes if the values that I profess are actually embodied in the way that I live. I worry about my actions lining up with my preaching. And I think sometimes I search for some external verification, or if I'm being honest, probably validation, that I'm doing the right thing. I look for something to specific to latch onto so that I can say, this proves that I'm being faithful. And sometimes maybe that specific thing is a person whom I admire or an institution or organization that seems to be on the right track. Sometimes I wonder if I just want to hear from someone else who seems good to me that I'm good too. This need to reassure ourselves that we're good seems maybe especially relevant in our context today in which we all know how complicit we are in so many systems of evil in our world. We know how impossible it is to live a completely sin-free life. It feels like the moment we make a choice or the moment we drive our car down the street or walk into a store and buy something, we're immediately tangled up in so many systems that harm so many people. We want to be good people. We want to be good Christians. We don't always feel like we know for sure that we are. So I think it's natural for us to want to know that we're doing okay. I think it's natural for us to want some kind of verification or validation that we're on the right path. And I wonder if the Corinthians were looking for that validation in trying to convince themselves and others that they were following the right leader. And this leads to division and conflict in their church and congregation. And so Paul writes to them to offer some pastoral advice. And I think that his response is pretty brilliant. He doesn't get caught up in the surface-level argument, as is so easy to do when we're brought in to mediate a conflict. He doesn't get caught up in arguing about who's right and who's wrong. He doesn't get caught up in if he is a better leader than Peter or Apollos. He doesn't try to bolster himself up in the eyes of the Corinthians. Instead, he addresses what's happening at a deeper spiritual level. He pushes beyond the surface-level argument about leaders to get at the underlying issue that's bringing about this conflict, the need the Corinthians are feeling to be sure that they're on the right side, their need for validation and reassurance. And Paul says the problem in Corinth isn't which leader is the right one to follow. The problem isn't even that the Corinthian congregation is arguing about leadership. The problem is that they're approaching faithfulness as being about being right rather than being about surrendering one's life to Christ. Paul reframes the problem, reminding them that the gospel that brings them all together has never been about being right or being validated or being one of the good ones. He says, you're arguing about who is right, but when you join Christ in walking in the way of the cross, being right is no longer a priority. 
Our desire to be right is grounded in the wisdom and ways of the world, which teach us to value personal accomplishment and achievement, power and perfection. They teach us that we need to be impressive and be admired, that we need to be as infallible as possible. Paul says, to those who are steeped in the wisdom and ways of the world, the message of the cross is foolishness. Yet those of us who have encountered Christ recognize that the foolishness of God is far wiser than worldly wisdom. When we join Christ in walking the way of the cross, when we surrender our lives to Christ and the cross, we let go of that worldly wisdom and instead hold fast to the wisdom of God, which says that fullness of life is actually found in humility, vulnerability, and surrender. It's found in embracing our human weakness and frailty. It's found in confessing our shortcomings and our screw-ups and our failures. It's found in being set free of that perceived need to be impressive or perfect or great or right all the time. Now, the Corinthians get a bad rap because their struggles are, unfortunately for them, preserved in Scripture for all time. Generations and generations of Christians have read these texts and reflected on how misguided and divided those poor Corinthian disciples were. But obviously, I think this is a lesson that we all need to hear. I think this is a pretty universal human problem. Reverend Rachel preached just a few weeks ago and says all the time that we would often rather be right than be forgiven. It's so easy to get caught up in being right, which is a problem first because being right is about us and our abilities and functions like something we can do to somehow earn God's favor. And it's also a problem because it separates us from others and potentially denigrates others. Because if we're being honest, being right usually tacitly means being better. It's dangerously easy to commit idolatry in our enthusiasm to have the right theology, to believe the right things, to go to the right church or the best church, or to be one of the good Christians. It's dangerously easy to make our Christian discipleship all about us and about validation. And we do that in different ways. We might make it an intellectual exercise that becomes all about believing the right things. Or we might make it a self-aggrandizing exercise that's all about how we position ourselves and what we accomplish. Or we might make it a hierarchical exercise that's all about measuring ourselves against others. Or when we're in ministry and we encounter sin and evil in the world, it can be so tempting to focus completely on being on the right side of any given issue. Perhaps for those of us who are white, our first reaction to white supremacy is to reassure ourselves and others that we're one of the good white people, we're on the right side. Perhaps for those of us who are financially comfortable, our first reaction to poverty is to profess how tragic and complicated it is, to name that we wish it could be overcome, and also to reassure ourselves that there's no clear way that we can eradicate it, nothing that we can do about it right now. But walking alongside Christ in the way of the cross isn't about convincing ourselves we're on the right side. It isn't even about being on the right side. In this moment of schism within our United Methodist denomination, it's all too easy to get caught up in who follows Paul and who follows Peter and who's right and who's wrong and who's going to win the argument or somehow win the schism. But walking alongside Christ in the way of the cross has never been about winning. 
Paul warns us here that if we approach our discipleship as being about us and about what we do and about what we believe and about comparing ourselves to others and about winning, if we make it about our own wisdom or eloquence, then we actually empty the cross of its power. He says this in verse 17, For Christ sent me to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might, might not be emptied of its power. If we make the gospel about us, about what we do, then we make the cross empty, and we miss the entire revelation and impact of Christ's death and resurrection completely. Because what the cross of Christ does is reframe all of those worldly ideals of power and strength and prestige and status and being right and being certain about being self-made people. And what we experience in the cross is the truth that life is found in embracing our human weakness and our frailty, acknowledging that we know very little, confessing that we need grace desperately, in seeking not to be right or better, but simply to be ourselves, knowing that Christ dwells within us. Knowing that Christ alone is the one who assures us in any meaningful way and reassures us over and over and over again that we are loved completely. We are forgiven completely. We are good. And we're doing okay. The good news of the gospel is that we don't have to be right. We don't have to win. This passage begins a whole discourse from Paul on what he calls the foolishness or folly of the cross. To walk in the way of the cross, to embrace vulnerability and weakness, to confess failures, to stop trying to be impressive or great, to give up on being right, all of that seems foolish. To follow Jesus seems foolish. It doesn't make sense to bow down and worship a God who is executed at human hands. It doesn't make sense to choose to join a church community of people whom Paul later on in this same letter calls the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. It doesn't make sense to turn our backs on everything that the world swears will bring us happiness, meaning, and peace of mind. And yet, to those of us who are being saved, this foolishness is the beauty and the power of God. Paul warns us that if we make the gospel about ourselves, if we make it about our need to be right or about our abilities and accomplishments, if we center ourselves, we empty the cross of its power. Instead, we are to surrender to Christ and to surrender to the way of the cross. The good news is that through humility, vulnerability, sacrifice, and servanthood, through divine love and human weakness on the cross, Christ has emptied sin and death of their power. In a way, Christ has emptied our ability to empty the cross. The cross has changed everything, whether we embrace it or not. And so from here on out, let every empty cross that we see hanging in a church or hanging around someone's neck be a reminder. Not of the temptation for us to empty the cross of its meaning, but a reminder of the way that God empties the cross, which is through resurrection. Let empty crosses be reminders that the way of the cross leads to life.
Let us learn from the struggles of the Corinthian church. Let us learn from Paul. Let us let go of our need to be right. Let us let go of our desire to be impressive or eloquent or wise or great. Let us embrace humility and vulnerability. Let us surrender our lives to Christ and join him in the way of the cross. Let us know without a doubt that in our weakness, we are loved and grace abounds. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Asbury First Weekly Sermon. If you enjoyed this message, please visit asburyfirst.org and learn more about our mission to love God and neighbor, live fully, serve all, repeat.